the important value proposition to me around DeFi is that it's permissionless in that anyone can access it. Anyone with an internet connection and, and a wallet can access these protocols and that it's peer to peer. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon, and we've got a great guest today. We've got Jack. He's the founder of the Crypto Pragmatist. It's an email newsletter that focuses on the assets and narratives shaping cryptocurrency. Jack, thanks for joining today. How are you doing? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Doing well. Yeah, you know, I saw you on Twitter originally is how I, you know, came about you and the newsletter you write. And I saw some really awesome breakdowns of current tokens that are dropping, uh, stuff happening in the DeFi world, commentary on regulations and stuff. So I think you're going to have a really good take for our listeners today that's really DeFi and token focused versus more NFTs and like the metaverse at large. But I just like to hear from you, you know, can you walk us through how you started your crypto journey and how that really led you to creating the crypto pragmatist today? Yeah, so I'm definitely DeFi focused, although at Crypto Pragmatist, we try to cover anything relevant. We don't do so much on NFTs, but we're, we're looking into kind of new NFT use cases, stuff like that. So we try to keep it pretty broad, although I personally end up writing about DeFi a lot because I'm kind of from a finance background. Yeah, I bought my first Bitcoin in 2017 was trying to get rich quick, held on to that Bitcoin <laughs> all through the, the crash and then started getting into crypto in like March 2020, like the very bottom after I was like trying to like liquidate all my assets um, and saw kind of some of the stuff that was happening in around DeFi summer, saw that crypto had changed a lot since like the ICO era of 2017, 2018. And really kind of saw the potential of, of DeFi to kind of revolutionize finance. And coming from a finance background, I, I saw this as a really disruptive space. Started allocating kind of my personal portfolio and writing my own due diligence and research on, on some of these projects, which transitioned later into me spinning up this newsletter, which originally started out as just a free newsletter. And then we launched a paid product writing kind of like due diligence style reports that are still accessible to retail. We just saw like a huge hunger for retail friendly content in the space and then launched our product. And now we're, we're broadcasting to about 20,000 subscribers on a weekly basis. So it's been a quick run up and it's been incredibly fun, incredibly rewarding. That's awesome that your focus is really on, you know, explaining some of this really dense and complex information to like the retail investor and that you've reached such a large audience already. What is the main takeaway that you found from like the audience in terms of what are people looking to learn more about? Originally, I just kind of followed my curiosity and my curiosity tended to, to tended to be DeFi focused. And I knew that there was not a lot of good content, like explainer style content, right? Crypto is a little bit gated. There's like terminology that, that makes things inaccessible to the outgroup, people interested in crypto. So I think there's great value in being an effective explainer, an effective educator and teacher about some of these concepts. And if you can, can communicate effectively in the space, that's a tremendous competitive advantage. So at first it was just my curiosity and then the team and I, we developed this framework to explain kind of concepts in an accessible way. And a lot of people ended up being interested in the same stuff that we were interested in. And there kind of was this, uh, this cool mash or like mashup where we, where the things that we were interested in producing ended up being the things that others were interested in. So that, that was kind of the source of the, of the business. And, and we definitely try to, cover the trends that people are interested in. So a lot of, we'll listen to audience feedback, stuff like that, and cover the cutting edge and what people are most curious about. Yeah, 
You know, I really like what you said about following your curiosity. And anytime that you are making content, a piece of advice that I've heard is, you know, you need to write for essentially yourself, you know, and someone else is wondering the same thing you are having the same questions you are. And that's really why I, I enjoy being a podcast host and talking to people like you. So I've got a bunch of questions today around DeFi that are really like my authentic questions that I'm trying to work through. I feel like DeFi is something that I've actually kind of pushed away during my crypto experience. It's pretty similar to you. I got my first Bitcoin in 2017, held through the crash, and then like doubled down in the the March crash in 2020, right? For me personally, I've always kept it pretty, I would say, safe from the token perspective, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and not getting too much into DeFi, although I'm pretty heavy into NFTs right now. But so I'm excited to talk DeFi with you. So to start off with our DeFi discussion, for anybody who may not have the best understanding of it, can you please explain you know, what DeFi is and why it's important? I like to think of DeFi as businesses kind of that live on the blockchain in their kind of purest form. They're just protocols, right? So they're not necessarily people kind of operating this business. It's just code that lives on Ethereum or lives on Phantom or lives on Avalanche that operates a service that kind of provides value. So some of the kind of core services that we see that at the beginning of DeFi, and I think we're still in the early stages of DeFi, are, you know, like lending markets. So being able to put up collateral and borrow against that collateral, borrowing markets, exchanges. So being able to swap tokens and like leverage and options markets are other kind of primitives that exist within DeFi. The important value proposition to me around DeFi is that it's permissionless in that anyone can access it. Anyone with an internet connection and, and a wallet can access these protocols and that it's peer to peer. So the traditional finance industry is about $20 trillion. And if you think about that, that's all just like fees that they kind of gather from facilitating transactions. So like you look at a bank, right? You're putting your money in a savings account and they're effectively loaning that money out to somebody else. And they're taking their, you know, their percentage cut which ends up being a huge industry across all this money that, that changes hands. In cryptocurrency with these permissionless peer-to-peer -peer markets, the money just flows directly to participants, right? So if you have stable coins, if you have dollar-denominated stable coins and you're looking to earn interest on that, you can just lend those out to me and I'll pay you interest directly. And there's no middleman, there's no intermediary taking a cut of that. And that's the value proposition of DeFi. That's where DeFi kind of creates its value. We talk about in like the crypto world, I see, and you know, I think it's like one of Coinbase's central missions, or maybe it is their mission, is to democratize finance. And do you see these permissionless DeFi protocols and capabilities as actually making finance more accessible on a global scale? And I ask that question because some of this stuff is so complex, right? And you even use some, you know, some complex words. We're talking about protocols and and networks and whatnot. But will this eventually mature to, to the point where anyone around the world can participate in like a financial system where, you know, right now, I would say in a lot of places, that's that's not really possible. And and maybe in where you live and where I live right now, we have access to banks and institutions and like that. But that's definitely not true for everyone, right? Absolutely. And I, I definitely think about this problem a lot as someone who lives in Mexico, you know, so it's, it's a developing nation. And, you know, I think there's some statistic around 50% of Mexicans are unbanked. So don't have access to they just don't have a bank account, right, which is something I think a lot of Americans take for granted. A huge part of DeFi is onboarding unbanked people to, to like financial services, right? The beauty of DeFi is that it's like ungated, right? So as long as you have a way to kind of get some money into the system, like an on-ramp is the, is the terminology that, that uses, you can kind of interact with all this like network of protocols. Those on-ramps will be important to bring people onto DeFi. So like if you can't get your money on the crypto rails, it's impossible to participate, right? So that's going to be hugely important. Education, I think, is another, another part of this DeFi onboarding process. So if people don't understand DeFi or if they see it as scammy or if they see it as like lottery tickets, right? We're not going to get mainstream adoption. People aren't going to use these protocols as like savings <laughs> accounts, right? 
But I will say that there's definitely already adoption, especially in the developing world. Like Argentina is a Latin American country that we see a lot of adoption with because there's hyperinflation in the country. So people prefer to hold crypto assets and even U.S. dollars on on chain because Argentina doesn't have a stable currency that people can denominate it, right? We've seen this in, in Turkey as well and a couple other nation states. There's definitely already use cases for maybe not like lending markets necessarily or exchanges for the developing world, but definitely people using cryptocurrency as this way to like hold assets securely without the state infringing or the state be able to freeze your assets. Yeah, no, totally great points. And I think we're seeing a lot of that happen in real time with things going on in Ukraine and Russia. And we saw some examples of how assets can be frozen in Canada recently, and definitely having the power to hold and own, you know, everything with crypto comes down to a big central element that I like to think about as true ownership and accessibility. So a term I see in the DeFi world a lot is TVL. And that stands for total value locked. And honestly, this is something that I, I actually learned from reading one of your reports that you wrote in the Crypto Pragmatist. I, I feel like I had seen the term so many times that I just started reading it as TVL versus ever even understanding the actual acronym it stood for. You know what I mean? Can you explain like what total value locked is and why that's an important metric to assess when you know looking at you know DeFi tokens? Total value locked is a, a concept that's like unique to crypto. It means like how much money is stored in a given smart contract. So like smart contracts are, are tools to create kind of like programmable money, programmable dynamics around money. Total value lock just, just represents how much adoption a given smart contract has achieved measured typically in dollars. So like Phantom, I think the total value lock is like $8 billion or $6 billion. I forget exactly what it is today, but it just means how much money is stored in that ecosystem. The reason this is important is because like token price is one way to, to measure value. It's kind of constantly fluctuating in it. And we don't know if the market has a true idea of the value of this token, right? These things fluctuate, these things go up 10x or they go down 10x based on macroeconomic conditions. Total value locked is a way to get a, like a true barometer of how much value a protocol or a, a token or a contract contains. So it's, it's a data point really in, in the kind of equation of what we use to understand the value of something. Gotcha. And are you simply looking to see like the quantity, how much value is locked or if one blockchain has or one smart contract has 10 billion and another has 20 billion, but the token supplies are different, does that come into play too? Or is it simply like the overall number that's locked? Typically, it's just like the overall number locked. So one way we can use this is Solana and Phantom have about the same total value locked in all of their, you know, in their ecosystem, right? In their smart contracts. So it's between like six and $8 billion, both of these protocols. Solana is worth more than Phantom. So the token itself, like the representation of ownership in Solana is worth more than the representation of ownership in Phantom. So then maybe we can make an assumption of, well, this makes Phantom seem undervalued relative to Solana. Or we can take another perspective and we can say, okay, why does the market value Solana more than Phantom? Is it because they can process more transactions? Is it because there's something total value locked can't measure? It allows us to explore these dynamics in a way that doesn't look at token price. Yeah. You know, that, that's actually really interesting and, and definitely a data point that I'm going to be looking into for the future. And we'll, we're going to dive into Phantom a little bit later in this discussion. So I won't jump there just yet. So Really helpful explanation. Another DeFi question that I've had is, I've seen you talk about the blockchain trilemma, and that is the blockchains are trying to be like three things essentially, decentralized, scalable, and secure. And can you talk to me a little bit more about what this three-pronged problem really is and how different L1s are approaching that? The problem really is as simple as that. It's that we haven't seen a blockchain that can address all three of these problems. 
so far, all of the blockchains that exist kind of have to make a compromise across one of these aspects. So like we look at Solana or a chain like Phantom, right? They, they have very fast transactions. They're, they choose to make the compromise not within like speed, but within decentralization. So they're able to achieve quick speeds because they're less centralized networks. Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're very decentralized, but they make compromises in terms of speed. So, so far, the technology has just not progressed to the point where we can create like a perfect blockchain. All blockchains have compromises. Is there one of those factors out of the three that you think should be prioritized over the other? And I also ask that because I feel like we're seeing a lot of discussion around the decentralization of chains. It is a really amazing thing how Bitcoin and Ethereum are able to achieve this massively distributed network. But as we as we do scale, you know, do you think that comment on decentralization is going to become more or less important? The value depends on the user, right? So like I know the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman Fried. He, his number one criteria for evaluating a blockchain is transactions per second. So he's like, he thinks that speed is more important to a blockchain than decentralization. Bitcoiners see decentralization as like hugely important to the integrity of the network. And the reason that Bitcoin is valuable is that no single entity can stop Bitcoin. No single entity can censor a transaction they look at decentralization as the most important thing. I kind of happen to be in the camp that I I believe decentralization is the most important thing to a blockchain. I believe that without decentralization, these blockchains can kind of like be seen as, as glorified databases, right? If one person can shut off a blockchain, what are we even doing here? So I kind of do see decentralization as the, as the, point behind cryptocurrency in a a lot of ways but a lot of different people have different opinions on that so far decentralization hasn't necessarily been tested right the united states hasn't prohibited cryptocurrency right it hasn't outlawed cryptocurrency so so we haven't seen this like huge test of the decentralization of these networks and which which protocols and projects are truly decentralized perhaps someday we'll see that test but if we don't, then perhaps chains like Solana, who, who prioritize speed over decentralization, will be cheaper and faster to transact on. And people will flock to those chains as decentralization is, is costly. So there are compromises. Totally. That, that really makes sense. And you know, something that I was thinking about as you were talking about the, the speed factor is just how as technology evolves and developers learn like new techniques and ways and algorithms to handle all these transactions, I would imagine that speed is only going to increase. So like the fastest blockchain today may not be able to compete with one in, you know, X amount of years, yet decentralization is something that maybe is not as controlled by the technology and just more controlled by the network effects of people, you know, believing in it and coming on board. So that might be interesting to see play out over time. My gut feeling is that like earlier networks have a leg up in decentralization, you know, because decentralization comes about based on network effects, based on the most decentralized network will probably continue to be the most decentralized network, where the fastest network might be the newest network because it has availability to the, to the quickest technology. So yeah, it'll be a, a very interesting like theme to watch is what blockchains can outperform other blockchains and in which ways. 100%. Talking about like this, this problem, and I know you may not be 100% knowledgeable on everything ETH, like ETH2 and the merge happening, and it's, it's a lot going on, but do you have any thoughts on how the merge or some of the other roadmap updates will help Ethereum address the scalability aspect to this? So I think the general high-level consensus around the merge is, well, perhaps I'll just review the merge just for anyone who doesn't completely understand it. Uh, Ethereum is moving from a proof-of-work network, so where people use people represent a stake in running the network by the computing power they have, by the mining power on their, you know, on their computers, and it will transition to a proof-of-stake network where your share in the way the network operates is based on how much Ethereum you hold. 
So it's kind of it kind of moves from this computing-based model to a an equity-based model where the biggest holders of Ethereum have the biggest say in how the blockchain works. Which could lead to some form of centralization within the network, right? Absolutely. So that's one of the concerns with proof of stake is that if the rewards of the network are going to the biggest holder holders, there will be compounding effects for the biggest holders and that they will be able to have the biggest share and thus earn most of the revenue from the network, right? Where, you know, Bitcoin is a proof of work network. Bitcoiners tend to argue that Bitcoin is more democratic, that proof of work is more democratic. Proof of stake, though, has a couple of benefits. First of all, it's easier to operate a node in a proof of stake network. So in proof of stake, you can just set up a little node on your computer, right, where Bitcoin requires powerful mining equipment. So if anyone could run a node, that's, that's a good thing for decentralization. Proof of stake is also good from an environmental perspective in that it requires much less power. I don't know the exact multiple, but it, it's... The stat I'm seeing online is it, is it will make it 99% more efficient. Right. So that's a, a huge advantage in that because people are no longer trying to compete on the amount of computers they can run at one time, they're competing based on like the amount of Ethereum they hold. It's just more energy efficient. You know, I've been considering, am I going to stake my ETH when the merge happens? I've seen that it also should be increasing the interest rates that you can get from staking to probably double to potentially be in the 10 to 14% range. So it's pretty interesting when you think about what could potentially be one of the biggest global assets in terms of cryptocurrency, also being able to appreciate over time and staking it and earning, you know, income over time, it creates a a really interesting form of money. Do you have any thoughts on what could happen to other competing L1s with Ethereum after the merge? You know, are they at risk at all because of this massive upgrade happening to Ethereum? My gut says that, you know, the merge itself is not going to destroy L1s, right? I think there will always be competitors to Ethereum. Ethereum is clearly the number one smart contract platform for now. And I don't think the merge will necessarily change market share immediately. What I do see as affecting the dynamic of these smart contract platforms is L2 scaling solutions, which is kind of a separate thing, which are platforms that exist on top of Ethereum. They're kind of secondary networks on Ethereum that use the security of Ethereum, but conduct most of the computation off the network and they can fit all this computation into like a, a more energy and price efficient bundle that they kind of send back to the main chain, if that makes sense. And I do see that as being an existential threat to other L1s. These other layer one network smart contract platforms are typically competing because they're quicker and cheaper. There's definitely a possibility, a path where these layer two networks that sit on top of Ethereum have the potential to be just as fast and just as cheap as other layer one networks. And if you can combine that effectively with the security of Ethereum, the decentralization of Ethereum, then you have something that effectively solves the blockchain trilemma. Yeah, it was definitely a question I wanted to ask you about L2s today. Like, are there a couple L2s that you would say are worth looking into for anyone listening to this podcast or you, know, you particularly as an investor? Hmm. Yeah, I, I just had a good buddy who asked me this question today. I think the L2s that I'm most excited about, none of them have tokens yet. So there's kind of two possibilities in the technology that could win the L2 battle, the layer two battle, and their optimistic rollups and zero knowledge rollups. I won't get exactly into the tech or the pros and cons of these types of layer two networks, but I will say there's four that I'm particularly optimistic on. It's called, one called Optimism, one called Arbitrum, which are already existing networks. And then we have a technology called Starkware, Starknet. They're kind of two parallel technologies. And then ZK Sync is the last network that will be coming to Ethereum. All of these I've heard of. Now, is there any way for someone like you and me to go in and use them with the potential of you know being 
distributed tokens if there was ever like a, a token launch for from one of these networks down the road. Because I've seen people say like, you know, go in and use them now because, you know, you may be able to claim an airdrop almost like we've seen with, you know, other successful projects recently. Optimism has said kind of has kind of vehemently denied that they're going to have a token. It's up for debate if they will or not. But for now, I think we'll count Optimism out of the question. Arbitrum and ZK Sync are both networks that people are pretty confident are going to airdrop tokens. And you can just look up Arbitrum airdrop and there are articles on the best way to farm the airdrop. So the best way to interact with the network in a way that will allow you to get airdrop tokens in the future. So I'd recommend a quick Google search for, for any of those networks. And if you can play it the, the right way, it's possible you'll get tokens worth thousands of dollars. So it's kind of cool, uh, a cool mechanism in crypto. Is that something you've done yourself? Yeah, I've done a little airdrop farming around Arbitrum and ZK Sync both. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. It's, you know, something that I've noticed in crypto is that if you're in it every day, like over time, you'll notice there's things that you'll see brought up on online, on Twitter, on forums and articles. And then like sometimes those things are, they start small, but you know, trends, crypto is all about these trends that happen. And something I've told myself is, you know, if I hear something and I don't understand it, that's my biggest indicator to go learn about it. Because if I don't understand it now and I'm in this every day, then I know most people definitely don't understand it, but someone really smarts working on it. So I'm definitely going to be checking out some of those layer twos you mentioned and just learning up, maybe even trying to do some farming on them as well. So appreciate that explanation. And honestly, sometimes the best way to learn about something is by going going in and using it and understanding like how the network works and how you can use the network. And then you're also rewarded for that potentially financially in like a meaningful way to just kind of try these networks out. So it's a cool, uh, cool feature of crypto that we don't really see in other, in other financial markets. It is. So continuing my myriad of questions for you, I'm learning a ton. I want to talk about stable coins now. And, you know, I've seen people talk about how 2022 is the year of the stable coin. And this is another thing that I know I need to learn more on and start experimenting with. But why do we need stables? And I have some reasons that I've sourced from online. Actually, someone else who writes a newsletter we had on the podcast, Sean Purry, he writes for the Milk Road. They just this morning talked about stables in the newsletter and said that stables provide a couple of helpful reasons around taxes, you know, we, if we trade in crypto every day, we can get those are taxable event events, but trading in stables is not volatility. It's a way to have a dollar pegged asset that isn't changing in price. And then fees, stables are low fees versus crypto like Bitcoin and Ethereum can often be, you know, $10 plus for a transaction. So those are some reasons that I'm seeing around needing stables, but I'd be curious as to your take on why these are valuable to just the broader financial crypto market at large. Yeah, so I think we can bring it back to the current financial system, the traditional financial financial system. And you can look at like cryptocurrencies as stocks, perhaps, and uh, NFTs as collectibles. And then in that case, stable coins would just be dollars, right? There's a, a need to have like a stable, right? A stable currency, something that we can use to denominate our portfolios, to understand what a portfolio is worth, to invest, you know, like dry powder to invest or just uh, assets that we can learn, earn interest on. There's a lot of use cases for stable coins. It's vitally important to have this like stable currency that exists in cryptocurrency because we need these, this like base money, right? And Bitcoin kind of proposed to be this base money. Some people think of Ethereum as a base money in cryptocurrency, but the truth is that these assets are volatile relative to the currencies that we use to transact in the day-to-day. So we still need dollars on-chain, as they say, on you know cryptocurrency blockchains, and stablecoins have, have filled this role. Yeah. And you, know, you kind of allude to something that is going to be part of our next lineup of questions, talking about the... Bitcoin was originally thought to potentially be this asset that is that is used maybe in a way like stable coins are, but they're t- it's too volatile. And now we're seeing Bitcoin being used to back stable coins versus 
actual dollars. And I mean, that starts getting to, you know, really diving deep into, I feel like DeFi and whatnot. So this is, let's talk about projects that I have questions around. And I think that, you know, projects that investors should know about. And so the first one is Luna. And I'm hoping that this section is just really alpha packed and you have some, you know, high level knowledge for me as an investor too, and just everyone listening. But Luna is just like stables is something that I keep seeing more and more about. I mean, especially in the last couple of weeks, there's been so much news coming out about it. And Luna is a token and they also has an associated stable coin, UST. And that stable coin is I'm going to need you to explain it. I was about to try to explain it. And I was like, hold on a second. I got Jack. He's an expert in this. But what what I just saw come out this week or last week is that the Luna is going to start buying the organization behind it is going to start buying Bitcoin to help back their stable coin. So can you like help us break through the hype here around Luna? Is it something you're interested in? And do you think some of these moves to help back the algorithmic stable coin with Bitcoin is a good one? I think to answer this question, we have to understand like the types of stable coins. So first we have centralized stable coins, you know, dollar back stable coins. And typically we've seen these stable coins maintain their peg of one stable coin equals $1. So that's like someone holds a dollar in a bank account and says, if you have this stable coin and you give this stable coin to me, I will give you a dollar. So it's a guarantee that that coin is going to be worth $1, right? The issue with this stablecoin is that it's centralized. Someone's holding that dollar for you. So if someone steals that dollar, for example, or if a government says to the stablecoin provider that they can't hold more than $10 billion in a bank account, there are ways for these things to fail. So we look for decentralized ways that can prevent these like risks of the stablecoin from falling apart, the organization behind the stable coin being unable to meet its promise. And that's where these algorithmic stable coins come in. Is that why there's some concerns around Tether? Because Tether is a centralized stable coin. And until we see complete open documentation, we don't actually know that they have an actual dollar in the bank for every dollar of Tether out in the crypto world. Am I tracking that right? Right. That's one issue that we see with uh, centralized collateralized stable coins is like if they don't provide an open record of their books it's possible they're they're backing up one dollar with nothing and that's a huge problem and that's what we've seen with tether okay so we, we go from these centralized stable coins and then what came next then we have decentralized stable coins the first kind of major one to see like major product market fit was called die and the way die works is that you take an asset on chain and you plug it in to this protocol and it mints you a stable coin that it says is worth a dollar. The way that they can do this in a decentralized way is they hold the collateral in reserve. So if I plug in $1 worth of Ethereum to die, I can mint a little less than $1 worth of stable coin. And then if that Ethereum drops in value, DAI will automatically liquidate my loan and make me buy back my dollar's stablecoin and hold the peg that way. So it effectively guarantees that there's always collateral for the one DAI of stablecoin on the open market, if that makes sense. So that was like the first iteration of stablecoins. The issue with that is that it's like very collateral intensive. You need more collateral than you have stable coins. You know, I think DAI is like 1.5. They need $1.5 worth of assets to mint $1 worth of stable coins. So there's actually more demand for stable coins than the collateral can keep up with. And that's where like Luna uses collateral in a, in a very unique way in which they're effectively using their own cryptocurrency as collateral. So Luna, you can you can take $1 of Luna, which is like a stablecoin that fluctuates in, or a cryptocurrency that fluctuates in price, and you can mint $1 of UST, which is the stablecoin. So instead of having to kind of like plug in your assets and borrow against your assets, you can mint a stablecoin with a cryptocurrency that fluctuates in price. 
and this model is new and novel and it uses collateral in a way that doesn't require as much collateral as previously but some people say it's it's kind of doomed to fail that it's like a it's going to get too big and there won't be enough collateral to back it up and then there will be a bank run and there will not be enough collateral to back up the stablecoin yeah and that collateral is where some of the purchases of bitcoin comes into play right right and that's thought to prevent this death spiral that i'm seeing it being called right so then the idea is that if we buy if we have 10 billion dollars worth of stablecoin and we buy a billion dollars worth of bitcoin then that will be like our gold reserve you know of assets that will back this dollar and bitcoin along with luna is going to back this stablecoin and i think they plan to have a whole basket of assets that will effectively be the collateral that means that for every dollar of luna there is at least one dollar of some type of asset in this ecosystem i feel like it brings so many questions but you know there's even the chance here that their assets that they're using to back their stablecoin you know the bitcoin grows in value and all of a sudden you know they have a bigger reserve there's a chance it decreases in value and the reserve shrinks but would you say that Luna right now or UST is the leading stable coin or is, and also when you, when you get UST, you have to burn Luna, that creates a deflationary asset. Are you, a, are you pro Luna? Are you bullish on Luna right now? Or are you really just thinking that the stable coin UST is, is novel and exciting? The stable coin UST is super novel and incredibly exciting because it's, trying to solve this problem around minting enough stable coins to go around in a decentralized way. So huge props to Luna for trying to tackle this problem. If I wanted to hold dollars on chain, I would not hold UST because I believe that there are less risks associated with something like USDC, which is a dollar backed stablecoin. It has dollars in a bank account somewhere. I believe that that is more secure. UST is cool though because you can earn huge amounts of interest on UST. Like it's like a 19.5% interest rate right now. So 20% a year almost. They're doing this in a decentralized way. You so can do that on Anchor. Correct. Yeah. So these are really cool. I th but I think there's a higher risk. I do think there's a risk that UST depegs and becomes worth less than a dollar. I wouldn't say UST is a superior stable coin. It's the biggest decentralized stable coin right now. And they're obviously doing something right. And it, and it has held its peg in the past. But I wouldn't bet my savings that UST will continue to hold the peg. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think that what you mentioned, the 19.5% interest you can earn when staking your UST on Anchor Protocol is just really interesting. And that is not something I've really experimented with so far in my crypto journey. And, you know, I always hear about people taking, you know, taking some profits off the table, maybe keeping some money in stables for, you know, purchases at a later date. And I'm, I'm kind of asking myself right now, is Anchor something I want to try out? And if so, what percentage am I willing to do it with? Because I, like you said, it is, it's not unsafe necessarily, but it does pose some more risk than maybe a stable that has dollars backed in a bank account. So definitely, you know, worth thinking through the pros and cons. Right, absolutely. If you're willing to kind of actively monitor the Terra Luna ecosystem and you are going to monitor the reserves that they have around UST, it's it's probably pretty safe as as long as you're kind of actively watching and, and seeing if there are any kind of events that are going to increase the risk associated with holding UST. There are also ways to hedge the risk that like a, a more sophisticated like institution might take where they can kind of bet against Luna to make sure that if Luna collapses, then they have a position offsetting that Luna. So there are a couple of ways around it. You know, if you're just going to hold dollars, there's no real reason to hold UST. If you want 20% interest, though, that's a totally different story. And it, it's definitely worth looking into Luna if you want to earn some yield, some really attractive yields on stables. Yeah, I think I'm just going to try personally, and, and this is by no means advice. I'm just I wanted to do this almost more for the learning experience. I think I'm going to throw like $1,000 into UST, stake it, see what it's like to get the APR, and then, you know, make more decisions after that. But going through the process to demystify some of it is something that I think will be really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. 
And there are tons of there are a lot of people that have a lot of money in UST. So there are a lot of people that are very confident that UST will hold peg. There are other people that are not so confident. Yeah, I see them on Twitter. I, and I know right now there's like a, a $10 million bet going on between, you know, a few people to to see in a year from now how this holds up. So tokens I want to talk about are Phantom and Beanstalk. Can you give us the lowdown on Phantom? And, you know, I'm asking about this because I read your report on it. And this came out in January 2022. And the price has actually gone down since then. So I'm curious, are you still bullish on Phantom? Or are you waiting for certain price targets? I know I saw in the report that it was saying that once it passes like $3.40, that's where it gets into potentially a buy opportunity as it goes on up to that next zone. But now that it's lower, you know, how are you thinking about it right now? Yeah, so Phantom, our thesis around Phantom was a couple of catalysts in terms of like the development that was taking place on the ecosystem, along with the overweighted total value locked. So it was there was a lot more total value locked within Phantom than other comparable blockchains. So we saw it as undervalued relative to those. Obviously, the crypto market has has consistently trended down since January. So we're definitely seeing some effects of that kind of depressing Phantom's price, as well as a big project was launched on Phantom called Solidly by a, a very famous developer called Andre Cronje. He ended up like quitting DeFi in this huge drama filled two weeks that was incredible and he was seen as like a key value driver for the the phantom ecosystem so the fact that he quit really depressed phantom price hmm is it a buy right now given like the macroeconomic uncertainties right now around you know russia ukraine you know the fed like there's a lot of stuff going on that might create some volatility that is unfriendly to crypto so i don't hold any phantom right now personally who knows? Sometimes like it's the, the darkest before dawn and it could totally turn around. But I think part of our thesis around why Phantom was going to increase in price is now kind of invalidated. And that Andre Cronje, who's this developer we were really interested in, has left the ecosystem and in that macroeconomic conditions have changed. So I'd be a little hesitant to hold Phantom at the moment. Makes sense. No, I like that explanation. And what about Beanstalk? And this is one that just popped up on my radar and I've seen you talking about it. Can you explain how this is another form of stable coin and is this something you're excited about at the moment and would would recommend looking into? Yeah, so Beanstalk is this new project. It's kind of like UST in that it tries to tackle a problem around decentralized stable coins and solve that problem in a novel way. And Beanstalk, what they do specifically is they use credit. Beanstalk like effectively borrows from investors, promising to pay them back. And that is what allows the protocol to hold their stablecoin at $1. Is this going to work? Who knows? You kind of have to try these things out and see if they work long term. And that's the best way to understand if they're, they'll hold their value is just like try them out in the real world. And again, we Beanstalk has a lot of like earning opportunities associated with it. So you can earn very high yields by holding the stablecoin and kind of helping it hold peg, have a use case. What's the best entry way to get into Beanstalk? Is it to hold the stable? Is it to buy, what are they called, pods? Mm-hmm. So pods are effectively like bonds. They're like the debt that backs up the system. It's a very speculative debt. So it could, you know, it could pay off bigly. You know, you can buy basically $1 worth of debt for $0.03, cents, so effectively like create a 33x on your investment. That is if the protocol ends up being successful because you have to wait a long time for that debt to kind of mature. And there's no timeline on that, right? Yeah, it's just kind of like the system where it's first in, first out. So you just kind of have to wait until they, like right now they have $650 million in debt and they mint a bit at a time. So... $650 million of stable coins from now, you'll get your debt paid off. But who knows if they'll ever reach that point or who knows if their stable coin will continue to hold the peg of a dollar in 650 million stable coins. Another way to, to benefit from it is to hold that stable coin and earn yield on it. And you can earn yield in terms of like more stable coins and in terms of 
the governance token. So you can also hold, you can deposit stable coins and then hold a share in the protocol, like hold equity in the protocol, earn that based on your deposit. So there's a couple of ways to play that. Cool. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm definitely going to look into this one too a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit of a, a degen play, but I, I appreciate you breaking That's that That's very down much and, a degen play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as I, I think I told you at the beginning of the pod, you know, DeFi has been something I've been staying away from because it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to learn here. It's very financial and, and technical in nature. And I think there's something definitely exciting and exciting and educational about trying so i'll look into i'll look into some of that debt maybe it's worth buying a little bit and seeing how that plays out last token i want to ask you about is the ape coin because just because that was a recent release i just want your you know reaction how are you thinking about this coin right now we've seen a lot of analysis on twitter about the market cap of ApeCoin, you know, is it justified? But at the same time, it's not really tied to Yuga Labs. It's really built to be its own coin for the metaverse. So the question is, is it going to be adopted widely by other projects, by other companies and, you know, metaverse things? Or are we going to see other Web3 companies and projects continue to launch their own coins and use them, you know? So that's really where it sits for me right now. Like, is ApeCoin going to be adopted broadly or are we going to see others continue to use it? But I'm not sure. We just saw more positive Yuga Labs news today with the A16Z announcement of funding at $450 million. I mean, tons of big investors in there from Google and A16Z and honestly, just a lot, Adidas and so many others. I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of mixed. I don't know if I should take this as ApeCoin right now is valued fairly or if it has a lot of room to grow. Yeah, so as someone who follows DeFi pretty closely, there are ways we can value protocols in in very data-backed ways. So like, for example, if this protocol earns a million dollars a year and it pays that out to its holders, we can like put a multiple on that. We can say it's probably worth about 10 times its yearly revenue. And then we can create a token valuation around that. For something like ApeCoin, the value is kind of like the meme value, right? And there's a lot of like memetic value, they call it, in crypto. And ApeCoin is like how persistent or how durable will this meme of ApeCoin will be? But how will this, you know, be adopted in the in the metaverse? And these are all questions that don't have necessarily like data backing to it. So it's hard to it's hard to predict that. Uh, you almost kind of have to be like this cultural influencer, this this meme lord to like understand the, the value in, in ApeCoin. So there's obviously asymmetric upside in that, in that like this becomes the universal coin of the metaverse. But there's also this idea that like, no, ApeCoin is not backed by any cash flows that might make like a value-oriented investor stray away from it. I I don't touch NFTs that much. I play around a little with them. I'm not touching ApeCoin for now. Yeah. Is there something specific that will make you change, you know, that tone? Or is it really just, you kind of alluded to it earlier, seeing how they, how the value gets paid back to the, the, the network. And I know there's a lot of proposals right now that get, are getting voted on in the DAO. So maybe it's just tracking how that's going and seeing what comes about from standing up their own marketplace and stuff like that. I think if we see some type of like unified metaverse, like we see a, a single metaverse where everyone is kind of moving towards, and if ApeCoin is the currency of that metaverse, I think I would begin to be interested in that. For now, when I can't measure it, it's hard to be like, oh, this is a very attractive investment to me. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing Yuga say like we're building a unified metaverse. We just don't know how long that's going to take and if that will actually be adopted by others. So those are the questions that I think you'd be asking yourself right now. So good to know. All right. I want to end with our one, two, web three. I've got a couple quick questions for you. Who's an influential web three creator, educator, collector who's really inspired you? There's so many great ones out there. I really like Adam Cochran, who writes some really great threads on Twitter does some really cool thinking about Ethereum and value investing within the cryptocurrency space, blockchain businesses as opposed to blockchain degen plays. Uh, he's a big inspiration and I really like his content that he produces. 
Awesome. Check them out. And then normally I ask about your favorite NFT, but I'll also say you could give your favorite token if you'd like, since that's your area of expertise. I will do the NFT option. I'm just learning about a token called GMDAO. Um, and they're kind of this collective that is like launching tokens within the DAO. So to me, it's kind of a new use case of NFTs and that it's like this community that accrues value back to the community by launching out NFT projects and giving the access to that community. So I see it as kind of like a cash flow in terms of NFTs. So it kind of fits my existing world flow while also using this new primitive that is like the NFT. Yep. And then last question, in five years, what's the craziest thing we'll be doing in the metaverse or the DeFi space that we're not even thinking about yet? Oh, that's such a hard question. I think we'll begin to see new, in both spaces, we'll begin to see new ways to coordinate, whether that ends up being via NFTs or whether that ends up being around fungible tokens. We'll see new ways of people transmitting value and coordinating around tokens autonomously in a way that allows us to kind of like leverage human capital and resources and technology in new, really exciting ways. Yeah, love it. I really appreciate the conversation today. I learned so much. I think our listeners are going to do the same. Can you please let everyone know how they can connect with you and your newsletter after they listen to the podcast? Give me a follow on Twitter at, at Jack Newald. I'm on Twitter a lot, way too much. And you can also check out our newsletter at cryptopragmatist.com. I'll send you over there as well. Awesome. I know I'm going to become a paying member of the newsletter. I learned so much from you and I'm looking forward to continuing to do so. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please drop a like and subscribe on YouTube if that's where you're listening. If you're on Apple or Spotify, leaving a review and following the podcast helps so much for us to continue to reach listeners every week. So with that, I'll see you next week on another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. And with that, I'm out. Thanks, Jack. See ya. Thank you. hope you've enjoyed this episode of the unstoppable podcast if something we said today resonated with you please leave us a review subscribe and share this with your friends and remember this conversation doesn't have to end here tweet us your questions thoughts and ideas to unstoppable web i look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening